You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Mark, Rodney, Towner, it's the four of us this morning. And uh, what, a, what a world. A week ago, we did this podcast, and we didn't talk about the banking system. And a week later, it is front page news every single day. Banks continue to teeter. Banks have been bailed out, although politicians don't want to use the B word, and we can get into that a little bit. But let's start, Mark, with your NCAA bracket. I think that's as busted as the banks. <laughs> I need a bailout. I'm not embarrassed to use the word. You need a bailout in your <laughs> own pool. I need a bailout in my own pool. I was telling uh, Bob earlier that. I went out of my survivor pool by 1.30 on the first day. I had Virginia yesterday in the survivor oh. pool. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I lasted exactly. You're not a survivor, Mark. <laughs> no, I lasted exactly two games in the survivor pool. Oh. And, and I did not see Princeton coming, but neither did the rest of the country. No. So if and when, if and when there is a Purdue Indiana final, I can still I can salvage this season here. Well, Mark, I'm wearing my Michigan hoodie this morning, and I'm all in for the never say die Wolverines against Vandy in the NIT this Saturday. Howard, very I, very I, exciting. It's baseball season in <laughs> Ann Arbor, Howard. You got you got the wrong sport. Town of your Dukies prevailed. Survive in advance. We'll see what happens this weekend. Your new coach and Rodney, where are your teams? You Illinois know, is out. Uh, Illinois is out first round. And my Iowa Hawkeyes, because I grew up an Iowa Hawkeye fan, were also eliminated. I am happy to admit, though, because I wanted to, uh, I wanted to have a chance at winning this pool. I picked against both of them in the alderman pool that I am a, a first-time member of. A first-time member and a first-place finisher after day one. And I owe Rodney a screenshot of, of him at the top. Rodney, of the sell, sell your future earnings now to an <laughs> right. unsuspecting participant yeah. who... Well, we're not, we're not going to ask Rodney if he Venmoed his $20. He, he gets... No, I'm, tec- I'm technically not capable of, but my wife was probably... <laughs> the first one to get Venmo in because I know Towner probably won't pay until the tournament's even over and then complain about it. I already paid. And by the way, not only did I already pay, you pay somebody who's a relative of Mark Alderman's. I don't even yeah, know. Ethan what... Alderman is the custodian. Yeah. He's the fiduciary and good All luck right. getting your money. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. How many people in the Alderman family am I having financial dealings with over this NCAA? Well, I, I what, think metaphorically this is like the banking system guys <laughs> right. uh, so over last weekend the fed and the fdic stepped in to ensure all depositors in silicon valley bank and signature bank above two hundred and fifty thousand dollars above the fdic limit and provided 
a Fed lending facility to the banking system to uh, backstop banks that hadn't marked their bonds to market. And the bonds, uh, what happened is the banks had these treasuries on their portfolio, low interest rate treasuries, and they weren't earning interest at the rate that uh, they would today, be, if issued today, because um, interest rates have gone up significantly. And when the banks were forced to, when SVB was forced to liquidate these bonds in its portfolio, because depositors were demanding their capital back, SVB took a huge loss. And so what the government, what the Fed did is the Fed said to the banks, hey, banks, you can borrow against your treasury bonds to ensure that if you need to liquidate, you do so at their full value, essentially. That's essentially what what happened. And Counter, there's this whole bailout versus non-bailout thing. This was a this was a bailout. It's a bailout. It's a bailout. I mean, it's look, it's sure there's an insured fund. That insured fund it does not have enough money in it to uh, ultimately ensure all of the potential defaults that could happen or or bank crashes that could happen. So if it becomes a systemic problem, it is officially a bailout where taxpayers are putting money in. Uh, if it is a limited in scope instance, then it is not a bailout because there's enough money in the insurance fund to cover uh, the expected losses. But this is just fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating because Last week, last weekend, I should say, all we had, I mean, tech CEOs were out there doing TikTok videos trying to convince people that they needed all their money back uh, that wasn't insured in, in uh, Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, this is a Twitter bank crash of monumental proportions. It's it's a sales job to make sure that if your money is unfortunately in a bank that that crashes, that you get all of your all of your uh, your earnings your 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 money that you have in the bank is is fully insured everybody else is insured up to 250,000 that being said we've never had a bank crash where except for one uh IndyMac I believe it was uh where all of the depositors no matter how much money they had in the bank didn't get all of their their funds back so so Rodney your colleagues your former colleagues in Congress how are they looking at this because it's really the executive branch. I mean, not really. It is exclusively the executive branch that had the authority under Dodd-Frank to do this. And they executed their authority. They made the systemically significant determinations and, and they did it. No congressional role. Yeah, I, I think there's a short-term play and a long-term play. Short-term, I think many of my former colleagues are sitting back trying to figure out a way to blame the Biden administration for doing something they shouldn't have done. Uh, but in the end, many of them were probably breathing a sigh of relief that there wasn't some uh, social media-related panic and a run on, on banks throughout our country, especially in rural America and their districts. Long-term, I think this fits into their oversight agenda. I think Patrick McHenry's kind of licking his chops, not because of the the uh, Silicon Valley Bank, especially, that's easy. I mean, you can go into the the woke policies that, you know, Mark espouses all the banks in America to utilize. Uh, but but in the end, it's it's also about the 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 bank that's that's kind of the asterisk in the announcement. Oh, and Signature Bank too is going to be helped here. Um, has anybody noticed the irony? 
that the author, the namesake of half of Dodd-Frank, Barney yes. Frank, was sitting on Signature Bank's board at the time of this now rescue. And I think, Howard, this also goes back to the fact that during the last meltdown and the true run on, on many of our larger banks in a financial crisis, you must have done too good a job in the executive branch to make people think, now, this is going to be the status quo for the future. Well, I listen, I always said that the taxpayer made money on TARP. And I always said that was a terrible thing. People celebrate that. And I didn't. Not because I wanted taxpayers to lose money, but because it increases the moral hazard. And and so uh, like bailouts, bailouts have no cost. And Mark, I don't think that's true. I think bailouts have a cost. I think they should have a cost. And the notion here that the administration's putting out this line at no cost to taxpayers, <laughs> eventually there's a cost to taxpayers. The bill will come due. Right. The bill will come due. But I I would just say a couple of things. Uh, the Biden administration acted with the authority that Congress gave it. So if Congress doesn't like this action, Congress should reexamine the authority that, it, that it's granted. This wasn't a, an exercise of inherent presidential authority. This was part of the banking regulation that Congress granted to the executive branch. So I have no, no issue as a separation of powers matter with, with what the administration did. I, I confess that uh, it, it's unfortunate that Silicon Valley Bank went first because that opens up the woke uh, line line of uh, blame here. It's very hard for me to see how getting caught uh, in in that interest rate rise has anything to do with the diversity commitment of, uh, of- not diversity, Mark. It, it's uh, climate is the argument. Kim Strassel has an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal today about did ESG cause SVB and the it has nothing to do with diversity it has to do with the vast majority not the vast majority but a significant number of the borrowers in SVB's portfolio were climate climate startup climate related startups right, right. the concentration in tech obviously turned out to be the the issue well no not just tech climate Climate-related startups. It's not well. You're going to have to connect the dots for me as to how that that caused. Well, the Mark, run. you might you might or might not know what the E in ESG means. They're not. The point is, they're not creditworthy businesses. What she says in her column is that they were effectively subprime borrowers, and it's. The bad loans that caused this problem that I'm having trouble seeing. Part of it, part partially, yeah. Well, it, it what I think is most interesting is what Towner said a, a second ago, is that tech CEOs are libertarians till they get punched in the face, as Mike Tyson would say. And, and then they become the greatest right. advocates of government intervention in the economy. But... 
By the way, I don't agree with her, but I'm just having fun putting you on the spot. Just to well, be clear. I'm changing the subject because I'm not following that line of can, can I go can I go back to that for one second though, Howard? I think that's I think that's the <laughs> fundamental question of green bonds, you know, ESG policy as a whole, environmental policy. Can you make it such that you are doing the quote unquote good? At the same time, you are making money because that's what investments are actually theoretically supposed to do. And I think that's that's been the the linchpin to the last 10 years of investing based on on social action is trying to find that sweet spot where you're actually making money. Right. Exactly. Uh, in doing so and making a return, by the way, that's as good as a return if you weren't being socially conscious. But, right. but that's why it's unfortunate. Uh, that SVB went first because that's not what happened with Signature. It's not what happened with Credit Suisse. It's not what it happened or is happening with the other banks that are under stress. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not. I, I accept the question. I don't agree with with the answer there. But I do think it's it's just damn entertaining that all of the tech execs. Who, whose fundamental attitude towards the federal government was leave me alone, just go away and leave me alone and let me change the world and get rich. As soon as they had a problem, they, they went running to Washington, which is what happened with the pandemic. And and there's still a role, Rodney, for for the, the federal government in, in the economy, notwithstanding that that aspect of uh, woke culture out west mark the point is they were they had they had 1500 i think she says in her column 15 more than 1500 climate related startups they had a hunger to lend as a result of their hunger to lend they disregarded risk in the portfolio it's not that the climate startups caused the run it's that the desire to lend to said startups caused the bank to disregard risk management, which led to the run. And I, look, I'm not saying it's right, but it's 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 provocative it's and worthy food, of discussion. Food for thought. Yeah. It, I think, but that's not Signature Bank. Signature Bank <laughs> was lending into the uh, real estate community. Crypto. Signature bank was crypto. Signature bank was law firms and other professional services firms. And Signature bank was caused by the Silicon Valley Bank in a lot of ways. It's a run. It's a run based on a view of the vulnerability of an institution and this mark-to-market issue. Look, the regulators, at the end of the day, the regulators are really the ones to blame here. Yeah, they were asleep at the wheel, Rodney. They were asleep at the wheel, but long-term too. What does this mean? Does this mean a bank like Silicon Valley Bank who had a loan portfolio that we can debate this entire podcast of whether or not it was appropriate or whether or not it led to the run. But in the end, long-term, are banks going to be riskier? Are they going to invest more in what we would consider the climate BS, ESG BS, uh, that's not really uh, anything more than being a subprime loan when you look at their creditworthiness, are, are banks going to be more interested because of the rules and regulations under Dodd-Frank to invest in companies like that because they know the federal government's always going to be a backstop now? 
or are we going to go to more of a, a process where they're a little more jittery about taking loans that may not work out for their customers as a whole? Yeah, well, that's why regulators have to regulate and they weren't properly supervising. It's actually regulators have to supervise and they weren't properly supervising these institutions and they need to do so in the future. Yeah, I know you want I know you want to move on, but is there any way? Oh, Towner, I apologize. No, you're fine. Go my issue, my long-term issue is were regulators treating those banks differently than a bank in my hometown of Taylorville, Illinois? Um, were they treating a bank that had Barney Frank from Dodd Frank fame sitting on their board of directors differently? Were they treating Silicon Valley Bank differently because of their focus on climate and ESG? And I think that's a question that my former colleagues need to need to ask. Yeah, I, I'm going to differ from you just slightly there, Rodney, because I'm not I, I don't think for a second that ESG or climate investment is necessarily BS. It some of it is. Some of it's absolutely BS. It's about a rate of return. And there's a there's a separation at the end of the day. At the, at the end of the day, it's about a rate of return on your investment. If you want to be a bank, by the way, and oh, by the way, stay in business and keep enough deposits to cover or to cover your 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 uh, finances that you have out there, you have to actually make money, and you can do that in the ESG space. You could also do it or not do it in the two thriving uh, investment options that we saw a year ago that maybe aren't such anymore, like cannabis or like crypto, uh, which have been taking it on the chin for the last year, for example. It's about- Well, well you can't do it in cannabis. So just, right. It's, it's about a rounded investment strategy. It's against, the, it's against the law. Rodney's colleagues well, wouldn't yeah. bring the law into the 21st century. So. Right. But what ended up taking down uh, SVB was, quite frankly, they just got stuck with a bunch of uh, treasury bills that had, uh, you know, a horrible interest posture vis-a-vis -vis the rising interest rates. But isn't that what the regulators are supposed to notice? Absolutely. That they might have too long, too many long-term investments? Everybody knew what was happening with interest rates and the value of right. those long-term investments long before Barney yeah. Frank and SVB were, were, were bailed out. Right now you're advocating for more bank regulation. And we are in a weird place <laughs> that I can't. I am not advocating no. for more bank regulation. I want them to do their no. jobs. No, more bank supervision. Supervision. Yeah. There you go. Which is different. <laughs> they have to do their jobs. I mean, this could have been, this could have been avoided. Well, that Howard, that's, explain that. That's my question for, for you, because what struck me, and, and I think most of the country, is the the suddenness with which this happened and the obviousness with which it happened. Once it happened, right, it was right. obvious. It, even I understood what the problem was. So how did such an obvious problem develop so suddenly? Well, social media. <laughs> well, um, some what? of that. But it's also because we just raised interest rates as astronomical right. level over right. the shortest period of time in our history of in our, our lifetimes. So. In our lifetimes, correct, yeah. correct. Yeah. I mean, it's been sudden, but still, the regulators—it's their job to ensure that the banks have enough capital. The fact of the matter is, the regulators are focused on the biggest banks because that's where the most risk was is, and but. The JP Morgans and B of A's and cities of the world, I mean, there aren't that many of them. 
And very quickly, I think because of panic and pandemonium and social media and and the like, this became a, a run that they deemed systemically significant as opposed to just impacting that that particular institution. And then for my continued banking education here, let me ask uh, the panel uh, another question. So First Republic Bank was bailed out by the big banks with a multi-billion dollar facility. How does that happen? Is is that Treasury telling the big banks to step up? Jamie Dimon and Janet Yellen on a phone call saying, hey, here's another way to do this. Uh, or maybe they said something along the lines of this does become a government bailout if First Republic goes down because we don't have any more money in the FDIC insurance fund and Congress is going to have to or Treasury is going to have to emergency appropriate a ton of actual uh, money that's outside of the insurance fund. So there's a there's a little bit behind it to say. Oh, it's not a federal bailout. No taxpayer money is put at harm until we have enough systemic risk that we have to bail out enough folks that all of a sudden there is a bunch of taxpayer money at risk. And so I think going forward, they're going to try to deal with these things uh, off the books as they did with First Republic, if at all possible, or off the federal books uh, so that it doesn't have that bailout impact. The uh, on the On the other side of that, what they're saying to to the bank, to the big banks is, hey, if this doesn't happen, then we're going to be left with five banks in this country. And you're effectively effectively going to be deemed public utilities. And the banks don't want that. So they have an incentive to step up as well. Yeah. We're going to break you up like the bells. It's crazy. <laughs> The irony of the whole thing is if all the regional banks fail, then the five large banks that are in this world will be broken up and become regional banks again. It's yeah, it's very circular. What do you think this does to Biden, Mark? I don't think it's going to do. I don't think the action that Treasury took is going to impact his political fortunes as an act. Again, he acted within the authority that was granted to him by Congress. I don't see the action being the political issue. The issue for Biden is the economy. Right. If this turns out to be a problem for the economy because of a banking crisis, that is a very bad way to launch a presidential campaign. Rodney, when you're, you're when you're the when you're the president, it's right. a good way to launch the campaign when you're the loyal opposition. Yeah. You know, if this would have happened in August of next year, I think it would have had a different impact, similar to what we saw in 08 uh, with the financial crisis. Uh, but it's now. And, you know, it pains me to do this, but and I'm going to have this used against me later, because once I say it on a podcast, it will never go away. I agree with Mark Alderman's assessment. <laughs> I thought you were going to compliment the president, Rodney. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did. I, I, I did. And it, and it hurt me more because I had to compliment Mark at the same time. Uh, 9.34 a.m. St. Patrick's Day 2023. Rodney agrees with Mark. No, by the way, that. no A day wonder, that will live in infamy. No wonder Patrick can't join us today. No <laughs> right. wonder. Right. It's a shock. Filling yeah. in for Patrick Martin. Rodney Davis. That's right. <laughs> Patrick has already consumed more green beer than 
Uh, well, it's only eight thirty in Chicago, right, Rodney? So he, he he's having br- a breakfast of green beer. Well, he's probably on the uh, the Guinness. It's good for you hangover treatment. So <laughs> he's he's got the hair of the dog, but he probably has yet to know. Well, I agree. I, Sorry, go ahead, Rodney. Yeah, I was saying he, he just he has yet to know that I'm probably winning and beating him in the NCAA pool. Uh, with Mark Alderman, and he might need to be reminded by you guys that I currently sit as the Ric Flair of the bracket. There you <laughs> go. I, I got to say, I don't know how I feel about this position that you've taken. You sent both of your favorite teams out in the first round to capture first place after the first day of the NCAA tournament, and I feel like that there's a there's a loyalty, there's, a fan There's a loyalty. disloyalty to that. I, I know. Moral, moral hazard is how yeah. I mean, well, you can you can win. send your team home in the second round. That is not a problem. I feel like that's the balance. But you have to have your teams go through the first round of the Ted, like Ted, yeah. Ted Lasso says, football is life. NCAA brackets are life, guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So there's been, and we've talked about this before, some buzz about about Biden shifting to the middle, and I think. The rumor mill is talking about maybe him announcing in the next couple of weeks. Mark, I think you're right that, look, this whole crisis is reflective of higher interest rates and a a distressed, well, who knows what to call this economy, because in many ways, it's not distressed. Right. Um, That's, it's it's unusual. It gets Um, harder, the the president's, re-election argument is that the economy is doing great. The unemployment at historic lows, anybody who wants a job can get one. But that gets that gets trickier. That gets trickier with banks failing. And I I agree with Rodney agreeing with me that it's a long time till November of, of 2024. But it it's hard to know where it's hard to talk about the economy because it is a, a riptide. It's cutting in, in every different direction. Where you stand depends on where you sit in the pecking order. So I I think the president's got a challenge in making his economic case. This doesn't. That was a good Nantucket metaphor, Mark. Exactly. Uh, it's a great point, Howard. You have the Nantucket Sound, the Atlantic Ocean crashing into <laughs> They're there. Great fishing. Great fishing in the rip. You just can't walk into it. Rodney, there's some polling that came out this week. I think a Quinnipiac poll that showed Trump increasing his lead over DeSantis and basically basically painting the Republican primary as a two-horse race between Trump and DeSantis and Trump in control. What do you make of that? It's way too early. Let me keep in mind, um, about three months out from my primary loss, I was up by 30 points in a poll. So, um, you know, you can throw you can throw polling to the wayside yeah, when, you don't so know what, when you don't know what the uh, you don't know what the turnout model is going to look like. And, and in the end, that turnout model is going to be decided by a few small states, uh, Iowa in particular. And once the candidates become active and they become announced, then you start to see the dichotomy of what matters to get people to vote for them. 
And you'll start to see those campaigns go in and hone in on that message, hone in on their ability put to put a ground game together when it comes to the Iowa caucuses. Ironically, even though Trump is the reason I'm not in Congress anymore, I was campaigning for him at the Iowa caucuses back in 2020. And, and my old home state, I was at a caucus location. It was my old grade school in Des Moines, Iowa. So I got to see that in action. It's not an organized event unless you are the best organized. And just like with Rick Santorum in 2012, when the Republicans screwed up the 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 uh, when Republicans screwed up that caucus, Democrats screwed that up for Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg won Iowa, but couldn't get any momentum because nobody knew. So those are the things that I think get sorted out on the ground in early states like Iowa, yeah. New Hampshire for Republicans, and when it's if, if it's truly a small field, if it's a Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Donald Trump, this is where you'll start to see voters go away from what many Republicans think are, is a safe choice, and that's Donald Trump. Yeah, Towner, it's hard to believe. It's it's <laughs> it, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to believe or accept that we can't do better. Don't worry, just don't worry. <laughs> it's March of the off year. It's March of the off year. We're not going to have primaries until next year, summer. I mean, we're thinking about summer this year. We're, we're a year and change away from primaries. We're eight to 12 months out from filing deadlines in most states at this point. Five months from the first Republican presidential debate. Well, that's ridiculous. five months. That's ridiculous. And if Donald Trump gets on that stage and eviscerates Ron DeSantis and defines Ron, De, Ron DeSantis, good luck. Well, maybe that's the thing that everybody's waiting for and see if Donald and Ron want to just duke it out. And maybe they both go down and then everybody else finally jumps. I, it's not going to happen. But what we are going to see over the course of like the April through June time frame is a lot more folks jumping into the race. I think I think we're going to get a lot more folks into the fray and everybody's just going to sort of bide their time a little bit. There is there is time here. And Trump basically loses a percentage point of support every month, it seems, or maybe two. And not so, according to this poll. Well, well I'm not trusting Ron DeSantis's pollsters. I have no idea what the questions were. I have no idea anything. And by the way, he's not a candidate for anything right now. So that's true. Look, so, I, 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 I'm not particularly comfortable Having the country place all of its chits on a guy we barely know. I, I like Ron DeSantis being the answer to our prayers. No offense to those on this podcast that may be supporting him. I I, I just want two credible opponents. I, I As usual, I'm not picking sides. I just want two credible <laughs> opponents. Brian Flaherty's head is exploding. Yeah. <laughs> that was said to make it explode even quicker, yeah. even more quickly. Well, I'm not he's picking be sides. It out with green beer since it is St. Patrick's Day, but his head's on fire. But but there obviously obviously things are going to happen between now and then. One of the things that is very, very likely to happen, and this is what I wanted to ask Towner and Rodney about, one of the things that is very likely to happen is Donald Trump is likely to be indicted for crimes here, there, or or everywhere, in New York, Georgia, maybe maybe federally. What does that great do question. to the chemistry? Because my concern is that 
justice being served is going to serve his purposes. And and that could push this thing in a winner-take-all primary. That could push this thing into his column. Can a felon run for president? I mean, be elected president? Yes, I think so. I don't think there's so any... a felon can vote can't for vote. president, can't vote. but a felon no. can be elected you president. God a... bless America, uh, baby. Yeah, a, yeah. A, a, a Depending on, I'm just a, a footnote with my lawyer had on. There are certain crimes. Uh, if you are convicted of certain crimes, you are ineligible to Reason. serve in federal office. But but not not the Stormy Davis. Uh, Hush Storm, money. Stormy, Stormy Daniels. Martin. Daniels, excuse me. Rodney, I apologize. <laughs> Not your sister. Excuse me. I apologize. Stormy Daniels. I've already forgotten that episode. I think it's a tragedy that the New York District Attorney is going to bring that back because it's only going to help Trump's candidacy. So are we moving the Oval Office to like the club fed uh, minimum security incarceration facility and like could be in Florida? Yeah, exactly. Well, I I mean, the feds probably have a plan to take over Mar-a-Lago and turn it into a federal penitentiary. (laughs) Um, Well, it's already got all the equipment there and all the classified documents. Right. Exactly. Hey, Rodney, you you and your former colleagues cannot possibly be happy about this. I mean, I'm sure they're true believers, but like I've had enough meetings with members of Congress where they say one thing behind closed doors and another publicly. The Republicans in Congress, Whoa. Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, cannot want this guy back. Wait a minute. You, are you telling me that there are conversations about former President Trump in public that are different than those in private? I know. Shocking. Breaking news. Breaking wow. news. I am. I never saw that happen. No, you're you're right, Howard. And I mean, there are the true believers out there that believe Donald Trump is a second coming and that somehow um, every decision he makes is is like coming like Moses coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Um, even though we can sit back and shake our head and and understand that it's political calculation that comes into Donald Trump's head, and that's it. Um, and the political calculation that the Trump team is putting forward right now is that if he is indicted, he becomes even more of a presidential candidate on the Republican side because he, more than anyone else I've ever witnessed, besides Mark Alderman at this law firm, plays up this victimhood and victimization <laughs> that allows them to succeed even more. Where, Howard, where did this guy come from? There's so <laughs> many directions I can take that, but Who I'm not going it? to. <laughs> no, I uh, once again, this is a, another historic moment. Write it down. I agree with Congressman Davis. My concern is, is what I said a second ago. I think that as the wheels of justice, which are turning much too slowly for for my days, but as the wheels of justice turn and Trump gets indicted and indicted and indicted again, he gets stronger as a candidate in the Republican primaries. That's great. Martyrdom has now taken over American politics. It's like, well, well then you're going to see Nick, Nikki Haley's going to try to figure out a way to get indicted. I I mean, please indict me for something. Here's here's what I did. Uh, Help help me. Nikki Haley is like very obviously shoplifting 
uh, in front of police <laughs> officers. Like, <laughs> oh boy, it is, it is so early in this presidential race, and I think I said it on the last podcast. You remember? I know. Everybody, we we would sit around at dinners of members of Congress, and Kevin McCarthy's really good at this. McCarthy will go around the room of thirty of us that uh, were eating on his tab, which was great. Um, and say, what do you think about the presidential race? And I remember years ago, two years ago, or, or shoot, now three years ago, uh, sitting there and most people around the table on the Democratic side of the primary were worried about Kamala Harris. She didn't even make it to Iowa. Right. Rodney, help me, Rodney and, and Towner, at this point in the 2012 cycle, in March of 2011, what was the... What was the congresswoman from Minnesota who was going to be the next president? Uh, Michelle, Michelle Bachman. Bachman. Michelle Bachman. Yeah. President Bachman. At this point in the 2012 cycle, it was President Bachman to Rodney's point. I know, but there's yeah. there's always somebody from Minnesota, though. I mean, Klobuchar, like, <laughs> we haven't even seen the Minnesota candidate yet. Tom Emmer's running. Five months. We're five months from... <laughs> the first Republican presidential debate. And we know how Trump can manipulate those to vanquish his opponents. And, you know, I think 2012 is a great example. Like I'll be, I'll put on my both sides as hat again, Barack Obama or Mitt Romney, the country wasn't going to hell in a handbasket with one or the other. That's what I, I just want two credible alternatives, but that's well, just me. Mitt was well, obviously got, in 2012. You've got one. So Towner and Rodney got to serve up another. We do. Mitt, Mitt Romney in that race, I mean, remember, it became a race between two pretty dull candidates. Um, and then after the fact, it's how you define that candidate. I mean, would anybody today look at Mitt Romney as the senator and say, oh, yeah, that was the candidate labeled a racist, a right. sexist, and an animal abuser during the 2012 presidential race. No, Barack Obama would give Mitt a hug and be like, thank you for standing up for America right. as a U.S. senator. Thank you for going against Republicans more than others do. Therefore, you were about freedom and you were about liberty and ESG. Well, Rodney, I've made the point in the pre-Rodney Davis era of Cozen O'Connor public strategies. There was one? What? There, there, what? there kind of was one. What? Shoot. I thought Mark just came on board. Heck, I had no idea. <laughs> I we talk about those times nostalgically. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I made the point many times to Mark, who would love to have George W. Bush back. Love about George W. Democratic Bush. vilification of George W. Bush as the the and Dick Cheney for that matter as we celebrated Liz Cheney on the left last year. They take the Cheneys and the Bushes back in a in a heartbeat. And I hope, I hope someday, Rodney, that our perspective normalizes and we get back to some semblance of like where Barack Obama and Mitt Romney can run for president and duke it out between two relatively boring guys, neither of whom's going to F up the country. And the Democrats won't lose their minds over the right and the Republicans won't lose their mind over the left. It's like, it's just as dumb as the vilification of Joe Biden for being a socialist. Joe Biden's not a socialist. Yes, and he is. He's a socialist. <laughs> You're wrong. 
it's it's silly talk and it, uh, it just drives me crazy so once again though i get to play both sides <laughs> well you know it's nice nobody else gets to see that you actually have a quarter zip on that's half michigan and half michigan state i mean you are the <laughs> of switzerland that's uh, like, not uh, true but i do have a new york giants hat on so you got darren you, go. you got darren waller because there, Josh McDaniels was pissed at him. He, tr- he traded away to the Giants, one of the best tight ends in the NFL. I know. I know. Well, there we will leave it there. We'll leave it on a good note for hey, the can big we, blue. Can we do something real quick? Because Bob, yes, please. Bob, our producer, is on here, and he never gets to talk. And, and we were talking beforehand about Towner's beloved Duke Blue Devils. And Bob was talking about knowing the coach of the Duke – of Duke, who is from Glenbrook, Glenbrook High School in Illinois, so Glenbrook North. Another Glenbrook North grad, if I'm not mistaken, was former Duke player and Duke assistant, and now current Northwestern coach Chris Collins, the son of Doug Collins. My question earlier, and I need to know from Bob and Towner, why was John Shire picked versus Chris Collins to be the head coach of Duke? Bob, you want to feel? Oh, I was going to absolutely. I don't need to say anything, Tom, or I will defer to you. No, 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 please. I, I. Well, how about Tommy Amaker while you're at it? Well, well I, no. Apparently, you had to go to this high school to coach Duke after Coach K. So yeah, I mean, and and that's just got to be embarrassing for Illinois, by the way, that we just <laughs> take all their good players because Coach K is from Chicago. Uh, so we just get to take everybody from Illinois. That's great. But is he still you know, alive? I mean, I mean, you guys like right. have this deity with that guy. He's absolutely still alive. He's in every commercial break on uh, <laughs> on this on this uh, tournament this this year. He's going to make more money off of off of being outside of coaching and doing all the commercials than he is uh, from his Nike contract. So, um, no, I think. You know, the bottom line, it, it shocked me when the coaching change happened, because I honestly thought, uh, as I had described to you guys a little bit earlier off air, that there would be sort of a, a move when you have such a longtime coach to an older, steady hand, the Guthridge of UNC when when uh, Dean stepped down, for example. But and I thought it would be like Mike Bray or Tommy Amaker would be another good choice. Uh, there's there's several good choices out there. But no, they they went with essentially what is the coach K version in the, in 1980, the young coach who, you know, is up and coming, Bob, I will turn over the floor. Yeah. I think there's no doubt that it was coach K's pick too. No doubt. That's what he wanted. And uh, Hey, quite a high school Rodney, right? I mean, and, and JT Comfer, who's, who's a Stanley cup winner with the Colorado avalanche and making millions of dollars, same school. So Something's going on with the water up there. Well, to bring it back home, to link it to my hometown, which clearly added to the success of anyone living in Glenbard and having their children uh, attend uh, attend uh, or in Glenbrook and and having their children attend uh, that school. I don't know if you know, but the coach of Chris Collins and the coach of those teams came from Taylorville, Illinois, none other than Brian James, who's an assistant coach for Chris Collins right now at Northwestern. Mm. I love the fact that you Who just referred to Duke as that school. That school. <laughs> I, I mean, are they like, in the, I mean, they're like a minor league team in North Carolina, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it, it should show you I'm winning the bracket and I haven't even seen a coach K commercial. 
in all honesty, they could move Duke out of North Carolina and nobody in North Carolina would realize it. Only people couldn't say that they're eight miles away from UNC. That's the only thing they'd lose. Yeah. Well, it's going to be fun as always. The uh, disrupted brackets are fun and uh, we'll, we'll continue, no doubt. And uh, spirited as always, guys, even a little more than normal. Uh, and we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.